And that's the way it ought to be with God's people. We shouldn't have to wear a sign around our neck saying, I'm a born-again Christian. They ought to be able to see a difference in our life. They ought to be able to see the Spirit of God working in us. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the radio teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. What does it take to bring an individual to salvation? Someone once said, God will move heaven and earth to reach the heart of an unbeliever. And certainly we've all heard dramatic stories of how some individuals came to faith. But none are as dramatic as that of King Nebuchadnezzar, whose salvation account is found in chapter 4 of our study in Daniel. Let's join Pastor Brogy as he begins a message entitled, The Conversion of a King. Take your Bibles with you this morning. Turn to the book of Daniel chapter 4. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great book. And today we want to study one of the greatest conversions in all of the Bible, the conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar. He was one of the cruelest and most hateful monarchs in human history, and yet he was brought to genuine faith in the Lord. But this chapter is more than just the conversion of a king. It's also the record of the person that God used to bring this king to his knees. And we live in a pagan society, a society that is becoming more and more pagan. And Daniel is a man of integrity who teaches us how to walk in the midst of a pagan society. Suppose I told you today that the head of ISIS shared his personal testimony on the internet. And he told how he had turned from the Islamic faith to the God of Israel, the one true God. And in describing his testimony, he speaks to the fact that he had lost his mind for seven years. And he lived like a beast. He ate grass. His hair grew long. His fingernails like claws. But one day he came to his senses and he realized that he had worshipped a false god of power and sensuality and money. And that his view of Allah was not the view of the one true God of Israel. And he came to faith. You would say, wow, that would be an incredible testimony that a Yahweh-hating Islamist would come to recognize the God of Israel and believe on the Lord Jesus. Yes, it would be an incredible testimony. But no less incredible than the one that we read of here today. Now, this is a narrative portion of Scripture, so we really need to deal with it as a unit So we're going to do the whole chapter, but I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But to give you a flavor, I want to start reading in verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately... 
the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. This chapter reads really like a gospel tract. It opens with King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony in the first few verses. It reads almost like a Pauline epistle. Notice verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. This is a very detailed first-person account of how this man came to salvation. And we find that this man is so thrilled, so changed, that he wants every people, every nation, and every tongue to be able to read of his testimony. Now, most Bible scholars believe that he wrote this with Daniel's help. In either case, it's his own affidavit. Daniel, of course, was the prophet that the Spirit of God used to organize the book. But nonetheless, these are the words of Nebuchadnezzar. And it's one of the few places in all of Scripture. In fact, it's the only place in all of the Bible where God uses a relatively new believer to write a portion of Scripture. Verse 1 He identifies himself as the author of this testimony, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples. In verse 2, it says, it seemed good to me, to me, Nebuchadnezzar, to declare these things. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, flourishing. And so we find this pagan king testifying throughout this chapter how he had found the living God. And so he says here in the opening verse, may your peace abound. Jesus said, the mouth speaks that which is in the heart. And this wealthy king, who from a human's perspective had everything, but from God's perspective had absolutely nothing, this king was converted. He says, may your peace abound. St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O Lord. And so because he found peace with God, The peace of God saturated his life, and that which is in the heart comes out on the lips. And by the way, the writing style that we find here is not unusual. It's typical of many Old Testament passages, especially in the Torah and in the Psalms, where the conclusion is found in the introduction. Let me give you an example. In Psalm 73, Asaph, who wrote the psalm, says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then after that statement, Asaph takes his readers through the drama and heartache and anger that he went through, only to discover the truth affirmed here in the opening verse. And so when you come to this testimony, this is not just more chin music from this king. This is real. He speaks in the opening three verses of his testimony, and then in verses 4 through 37, he describes how he got to that point, how he was converted. So we read here in verse 2, it has seemed good to me, literally the Hebrew reads, it was beautiful before me. 
What he is sharing is beautiful in his mind, and it is in God's. It seemed good to me to declare those signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Now, most of you know that phrase, signs and wonders. We find it in both the Old and the New Testament to speak of the miracles of God. And the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar is a miracle of God. Really, every conversion is a miracle of God. But then when he comes to verse 3, he moves from the signs and wonders in his own life to a more broad, generalized way. Notice how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar is admitting how different his kingdom is from God's. His is temporal. God's is eternal. His is for one generation. God's kingdom is from generation to generation. This is the language of a converted man who discovered the greatness and the mercy of God. Now, how on earth did he get to this place? Now, you have to remember, as I told you in the introductory sermon to the book of Daniel, that the opening verses tell us a lot about this king. If you read Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2, when he comes and he conquers Babylon, he takes the vessels that are found in the sacred temple of God, and he puts them in the, God of his, in the temple of his false god, Nebu, after whom, of course, he is named. It's his basic way as a free moral agent is saying, my God is greater than the God of Israel. And of course, God still loves this man. You say, God loves Nebuchadnezzar? Yes, he does. You know, God loved Hitler. You say, God really loved Hitler? God really did. For God so loved the world. The world means world. Forget my five-point Calvinist friends where it means something else. You've got to be educated into that position. World means world throughout the Scripture. God loved everyone. Now, God loves people in a way that He wants to bring them to salvation. And if you reject God's salvation, then you will not find His eternal love. But God cares about you just like He cared about this king. And so He tried to get His attention, if you remember in the second chapter, by giving Him a dream. And in the dream, He is the head of gold. And He describes Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom as a magnificent kingdom, a wealthy kingdom. But then He describes another kingdom and another kingdom and another kingdom and eventually Messiah's kingdom that will last for and ever and ever that will overthrow His kingdom. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar's response to that is, no, my kingdom will endure forever. My kingdom will be glorious. My name will always be remembered. And so if you remember, he created a statue where the head was not simply gold, but the entire statue was gold. And he asked everyone to bow down and to worship. But if you remember, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah refused to worship the image and they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And God gives him another expression of grace by showing him a fourth one in the fire who protects God's men. And so God is trying to bring this man to himself, but he is resistant. And so today we're going to discover how his conversion actually takes place. If you're using your note-taking outline, first we have the king's dream in verses 4 through 27. Then the king's disaster, beginning in verse 28, and then his deliverance, beginning in verse 34. So let's begin this morning with the king's dream. His conversion experience begins with another dream. 
And if you follow the chronology of the book very carefully, you discover that this dream takes about, place about 30 years after Nebuchadnezzar becomes king. Remember, we meet Daniel and his three friends when they're just used between around 15 or 18 based on the Hebrew word that is used for use. But when we come to Daniel in the sixth chapter, he's in his 80s. Well, this king had been ruling for about 30 years at this point. His kingdom had grown, just like God said. It had become magnificent. By this time, he had conquered many, many, many nations, and it had become the most powerful kingdom in the world. And so he can rightly testify in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. The word ease is a Hebrew word that means free from apprehension, free from any fear. The word flourishing is literally a Hebrew word that means growing green. In other words, he was at ease. He feared no one, not even the living God. And he was green and growing. From a worldly perspective, his kingdom had prospered. It was blessed. It was beyond anything anyone could ever imagine. He was indeed the head of gold. He had everything the world could offer, but he didn't have salvation it reminds me of what our Lord said when he stated, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and in the end he forfeits his soul? This king, he laid his head on the pillow at night with a sense of ease, with a sense of pride. His kingdom had become the number one kingdom in the world. He had never lost a single battle, not one as the Babylonian cuneiform affirms, but he had a false sense of security. Now remember, pride wants to live independently of the living God. And many times, not all the time, but most of the time, money, success, and pride go together in Scripture. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy saying, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. It's difficult to be prosperous and not to be prideful at the same time. I've met hundreds of Christians who have succeeded in the Christian life who are not wealthy, but I've met few believers who are wealthy and successful who also prosper spiritually. And so here is King Nebuchadnezzar. He was prosperous, but he was proud, but God nonetheless still loved him. So God gives him a dream. Because God wants to win this man. And there's a few details of the dream that I want to highlight. First, the dread of the dream is found here in verses 5 through 9. We read in verse 5, I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. This dream made him fearful. It wouldn't go away. It kept. It's a participle. It means over and over and over again. It kept alarming him. Now, God has a way of getting our attention. And here is a man who was not afraid of very much. He was certainly not afraid of the surrounding nations. As we've seen, he was not afraid of the living God. Did he have general revelation? Every person on the planet does. Every man knows there is one true God. In his heart of hearts, man is monotheistic. He is not polytheistic. It's rebellion, it's denying the fact that God's fingerprints are all over the creation, that the creation is separate from the Creator, and our conscience show both that there is one true God. He had that, but he rebelled against it, just as Romans 1 describes. So here is a man not afraid of much. He's like the guy who thinks he has the whole world wrapped around his finger. 
people who don't think they need anything, people who don't think they need God unless they just need Him in a crisis. And they pay God lip service. There's a lot of people like that. There's a crisis in their home, and all of a sudden they get committed to the Lord. That's a good response, but that's often too late. Or 9-11 comes on our country, and I remember churches being filled, and I remember sharing with my staff, I said, I wish this would last, but I suspect it will only be around for a month or so. And sure enough, after a month, Americans went back to the same old, same old. Jesus described people in his day who gave God only lip service. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me. There's a lot of people like that in our own nation who identify outwardly with Christianity, but it's only lip service. Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? You would think that would be the testimony of a spirit-filled person. In this case, it's actually the testimony of a lost man. And Jesus doesn't deny that unbelievers can sometimes even do these things. And then I will declare to them, not I once knew you, but I never knew you. It's just lip service. Lord, Lord. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? Lip service Christians. Nebuchadnezzar was like that. He gave God full lip service after Daniel interpreted his first dream. He gave God lip service again after he rescued the Hebrew children out of the fiery furnace. But that's all it is. It's not conversion. But this dream got to him. So we read beginning in verse 6, So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So all the paid professionals of the kingdom come in. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. If you were here in the second chapter, we delineated each of those four groups and the differences. Remember the term Chaldean can be used not only geographically of that place we call Chaldea, also called Babylon, or ethnically of the people who live there, Chaldeans or Babylonians, but it is also used in a technical sense of a class of wise men. So he brings in all the wise men, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Now that might seem a little odd, especially in light of their track record, that he would bring these guys in again. I mean, each time he needs help, he goes to them first. But that's the way the people of this world often are. They look for the experts, whether it's the expert counselor or the expert psychiatrist with their problems. And the counselor is supposed to be able to help him because of the degrees after his name. Sometimes I say to the person, well, have you ever asked them what their marriage is like? Have you ever asked them what marriage number they are on? Have you ever asked them what their kids turned out like? There are even Christian counselors who have the worst track record. I'm not saying that a person cannot teach out of their failure. They can. But most of the people teaching out of their failure is just spreading it to others. And they don't speak with any authority. They don't speak from the Scripture. They don't dish out advice that comes from the Word of God. And so verse 7 plainly says, They could not make its interpretation known to me. 
Why? Because the king was going to the wrong person. Put out in the margin next to this, 1 Corinthians 2.14. 1 Corinthians 2.14. There Paul said, but a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. He's talking about an unbeliever. The way we come naturally into this world, physically alive, but spiritually dead. Jude says, without or devoid of the Spirit. They cannot discern spiritual truth because they don't have the equipment. Listen, if I have a physical problem, I look for a good doctor. If I have a mechanical problem, I look for a good mechanic. But if I have a spiritual problem, I want to go to a spirit-filled, mature Christian who is going to counsel me from the Word of God. Look at verse 8. But finally, Daniel. By the way, I find that interesting that when he recounts the testimony, he prefers to call him Daniel. Why? Because this man is converted. He gave him, if you remember, in his friends, those pagan names. Most of us know them, at least Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their pagan names and not as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but their pagan names refuted the living God. But because this man is now converted, he prefers when he retells his testimony to use his Jewish name and not his Hebrew name. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar. And he will say that repeatedly because the people of every tribe, tongue, and nation that read of this testimony, they don't know Daniel by his Jewish name. They know him by his pagan name, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom there is a spirit of the holy gods, and I related the dream to him. Now, what took Nebuchadnezzar so long? Some commentators suggest that Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten the remarkable ability of this man to interpret dreams. That's just silly. That's not even bright. I don't know how someone could write that, but I found it in three commentaries. No, clearly that's not the case. He did not forget his ability. Look at verse 9. O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians. Don't miss the title, chief of the magicians. He had been promoted, and that's very important when you come to the sixth chapter. And it's very important, too, in understanding why the Magi were the way they were. Because of the influence of this man. You'll miss a lot at Christmas if you don't understand the profound influence Daniel had. O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, Tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen along with its interpretation. Clearly, the king had not forgotten his ability. Numerous other suggestions have been made. I won't bore you with them. But the answer is found just in a careful reading of verse 8. It does not say at last Nebuchadnezzar called Daniel. But verse 8 reads, finally, Daniel came in before me. I have no doubt that Daniel intentionally stayed away because I think Daniel knew that the king needed to see one more time the fallacy of his own wise men, the deficiency in their lives, and he wanted to highlight the greatness of his own God. And no doubt, this is a man who loved God. We've seen that already through the book, and we'll see it in the next few chapters all the way through the book. He loved the living God. 
And when God is in your heart and on your, in your life, it will come out on your lips. No doubt he witnessed to this king. He was a prophet of God. And all the prophets of God, the Bible says, preached of Messiah, which puts this context and this conversion in a little bit of historical context. Here is a man who probably time and time again, we will see Daniel every single day prayed three times a day. I'm sure on numerous occasions he said, oh God, I know it would be a miracle, but you've put me in this position of leadership under this despot who is a wicked man who cares less for people, who is so unmerciful. Oh Lord, please get a hold of this man's life and convert him. And God is going to do that. And when Daniel comes into the throne room, you can almost feel the sense of relief in the verse. I hope you picked up on the manner in which Nebuchadnezzar described Daniel and the Lord whom he served. It describes his, his description, tells me a couple of things about King Nebuchadnezzar. Number one, he's polytheistic. Notice, um, in fact, if you draw back to chapter 2 and verse 47, he makes a statement there. And there he says, surely your God is a God of gods. Then at the end of chapter 3, he makes the statement, there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. What does that tell you? It still tells us he's polytheistic. He doesn't believe in one God, but multiple gods. I was in India a few weeks ago, and we went into this pagan temple, Sham and myself, and we prayed for the priest and the man who was lost, and we talked to him about Jesus. Oh, yeah, I, I, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. He was just another God in the Parthenon of gods. No, when a Hindu is genuinely converted, like anyone else out of polytheism, he renounces all God's and worships the one true living God who's revealed himself in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And so here's a man who, one, acknowledges there's many gods, and two, by that, he's not affirming what his heart knows to be true, that there is only one God. Even the reprobate of Romans 1, who turns from the Creator and worships the creation Paul affirms he still recognizes in his heart of hearts that there's one true God. So when Daniel comes into his presence on this occasion, as stated here in verse 8, then again in verse 9, and then again in verse 18, each time the king says to Daniel that a spirit of the holy gods is in you. This is just lip service. He's not saved yet. He's still polytheistic. Nonetheless, God is at work in this man's life. Look, he's a pagan. So what is he using? Pagan terminology to basically say your God is evident in your life. In New Testament terminology, we would say, oh, Daniel is filled with the Spirit of God. You know, and that's the way it ought to be with God's people. We shouldn't have to wear a sign around our neck saying, I'm a born-again Christian. They ought to be able to see a difference in our life. They ought to be able to see the Spirit of God working in us. If God's Spirit is working in a person, it will be evident in their testimony and in their life. But too often the attractions of this world will make even a believer ineffective for Christ. You're listening to a message entitled, The Conversion of a King, part of our study of the book of Daniel. 
To listen to the rest of the message, tune in tomorrow or use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets. You can also visit us online at searchthescriptures.org and search for program DAN5. Or if you prefer, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 and ask for it by name. Tomorrow, part two of The Conversion of a King. Join us then as we search the scriptures.